Welcome to the GateWorld Podcast. This is episode number 78 of the GateWorld Podcast. I'm Darren. And I'm David. And this is the show where two nerds talk about Stargate. This week on the podcast, we're talking about Stargate Atlantis Season 2. This is in our continuing series in Stargate history. But before we get to Season 2, David, how have you been doing? I have been doing good. Anything you haven't been new? doing so good. I've been sick. I was sick over my... I got sick basically on my birthday. Continually sick, though. I mean, you just really had it hard. I mean, you go to another country, and like you said, all the, all the strains that are there, you get sooner or later. I think so. I think Britain has got just, like, malaria strains of, of <laughs> cold and flu. But, Jeez. no, having a four-year-old and a two-year-old is really what does it. Mm-hmm. Well, it's sunny skies and 73 Fahrenheit out here in sunny California. Beautiful. At it's least beautiful. the weather's been good here. Clear, sunny, brisk Scotland. The main discussion. So you want to start out with your favorite episode from this season? Sure, we can do that. And if you want to follow along at home, if you happen to be sitting in front of a computer, you can go to gateworld.net slash Atlantis slash S2 to look at the quick reference episode guide. So my favorite from this season is undoubtedly 218, Michael, the introduction Michael. of Connor Trenier, uh as uh, a wraith-human hybrid. Very good. Dr. Beckett's uh, Wraith retrovirus has finally uh, come to a head, and all the experimenting that they've done on it has finally made it work. Um, Ilya was uh, an early example of uh, a hybrid that didn't turn out so well, too iratus-like. And, of course, we've got Shepard, uh, too iratus-like as well. So uh, he's obviously made some headway in the experiments, and they start off... It's all about... You know, the, I, I cite this episode as an example of how any story can be made even better depending on perspective. You could have told this one like it would have normally been told, where they go out and they capture a wraith and they transform him and they deceive him. But because it's told from Michael's perspective, it becomes so much more interesting. Yeah. And that's what a lot of stories, you know, the, the best ones, you know, they're, a lot of them really come from the perspective from which they're told. I think that's true. This was an episode, this was also one of my favorites. I almost picked it as my favorite, and it's, not only does it kick off this long story arc for Michael and his hybrids, I mean, he, this guy is going to become a thorn in our side for years to come, but the way that they chose to tell the story was, was very much not straightforward. It was, okay, we are taking a wraith, who we know is, is the result of millions of years of evolution between an erratus bug and some human DNA that, that the ancients tried to seed on some hapless planet in the Pegasus galaxy. So we're basically, this this drug is going to strip out the erratus bug components and leave us with a human being. A human being. What if we tell the story from the point of view of that human being who's inside there? He's sort of, I mean, it's, he's under all the makeup, right? He's, he's basically a person, not a creature, who's locked away inside there, basically. Who's confused and trying to figure out his identity. And, you know, for, for once, our, uh, our regulars are kind of portrayed as, as bad guys, you know, deceivers where they're so intent on, on getting a, uh, an advantage over their enemy that they're willing to transform him into basically one of their own and then deceive him. 
you know, that this is a great Taylor episode in that regard, you know. Taylor, you know, you, you'd think that she would be more Ronin-like, where, you know, she would just hate the Wraith, but Taylor is trying to understand him mm-hmm. and he see his point of view. As much as we've sort of thumped Atlantis a little bit in the past for, for being just sort of uh, more action-driven, more plot-driven, this story is very much uh, a character story, uh, and it's very much an ethical problem. I mean, there's a moral yeah. dilemma here, and it, it sort of starts this, this moral question, okay, Beckett has, has created this retrovirus, so we can do this. Is it, a, is it the right thing to do? And, and once we get past... Uh, the season finale and into season three we're going to see some episodes where this comes up again when you've basically turned Wraith into human beings are they your enemy anymore what's your responsibility toward them then as Mm -hmm. as human beings who basically now become blank slates and Michael continues to ask this question what right do you have to do this to me I'm not a human being who's been transformed into a Wraith you know he's the result of millions of years of evolution and there's there's a, a thriving species that we just happen to not like that is really really bad so does that give us the right to do it yeah you know they danced around this question a couple of times in atlantis not enough to my satisfaction you know we've discussed this where in later season you know like when they came across the replicators they kind of sat the moral issues aside and, and spent more time in the action because there wasn't enough time in the show to talk about it and who knows how many deleted scenes were left on the cutting room floor where they did discuss these ethical issues. This was one where it was it was the central theme, and because it was the central theme, you know, it was it was an uh, important component to the show, and uh, stayed in. And it's a great episode because of it. You know, coupled with a great actor, Connor Trenier, and uh, a great script by Carl Binder. My favorite episode is going to be the next one forward in the Michael story arc. It's the season finale, Allies. And okay. this is, uh, Michael has gone off, he's gotten away from us, he's begun his his transformation back into a wraith, but he doesn't quite get all the way there. He's still got this retrovirus in his system that has basically made the change permanent. He goes back and forth, as we'll see uh, when he keeps coming back, he goes back and forth between human and wraith a few times, but when he, when he stops taking the drug and goes back wraith, he does not go all the way back. So he ends up becoming mm-hmm. this hybrid, this sort of third thing. He finds a hive and a queen, and he makes allies, and he comes up with plans. But he's still an outsider. He's not really treated like a, a full member of, of the Wraith society. And in the, the following season, we see that he is resented for what he is, you know, mm-hmm. being, I mean, being half Wraith and half food. Um, yeah. You know, they, they, look, they look at him, and they're like, what the hell are you? And yeah. that's how she treats him, you know. She says she she calls his name like she's calling some kind of vermin. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so I think that's in the Yeah, yeah, that doesn't come through nearly as much in Allies, if at all. No, um, no Allies. Because he's their chip that they toss out on the table and gets them to Atlantis. So Michael leads this hive ship to Atlantis. All through season two, we're we're pretending that that we got blowed up and the Wraith don't know that we're here. Now he brings the Wraith right to our doorstep and. As many queens and, and female Wraith as Andy Frizzell has played, this one was, was cool in in the... I mean, the, the picture that you see here on GateWorld is she's standing in the gate room because mm-hmm. this, this queen comes to us and forms an alliance. So there's a lot of interesting sort of uh, tiger dancing between Weir and this Wraith queen. So we have... Basically, their plan is 
the Wraith are at war with each other. They're not one big happy family. She wants to use this retrovirus against her own kind, uh, against enemy hives. So we have to help them try and find a way to weaponize this thing yeah. and then use it to, to turn Wraith on enemy hives into humans so that they can take it over. Good show. Really interesting premise. Really, I think, pretty easy to see that that, uh, that working with the devil was not going to work out in the end, that they were planning to, to turn on us at just the right moment. It's a nice little, a nice little cliffhanger at the end with Ronan and Rodney stuck on board the, the Wraith ship and taken captive. And they're heading to Earth. So how about your least favorite then? I don't think it's been a, a secret that my least favorite uh, has been The Tower. That's my least favorite for the entire uh, series of Atlantis. Oh, really? Uh, the, the reason b- being that it had so much potential and it fell short. A couple of interesting things were introduced in this uh, in this uh, episode that just weren't capitalized on. There's another Atlantis-sized city out there in the Pegasus galaxy. This is huge. Mm-hmm. This is big stuff. Very big. Because it may mean that there are more out there. You know, we were speculating at this point in the show where there are other city cities because Atlantis was basically considered the we thought the crown jewel of the entire Atlantean domain. Yeah, and let's do um, the timeline again. We know that Atlantis went to the Pegasus Galaxy quote several million years ago. Yeah. So how long that is? Three to five million maybe. Yeah. Uh, and the ancients sunk the city and left ten thousand years ago. So you have a civilization that's gone on for millions and millions of years in the Pegasus Galaxy. Just didn't make any sense that there wouldn't be other ancient cities out there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, ba- the main thing that we do in this episode is we take their drones. We don't use them until the very end of the show, and the replicators use them in the return part, too. But other than that, we never touch them again. It's just one of the big issues of Atlantis. The, the one thing that I do love about this show is the costumes. I think the costumes were fantastic. And this is because I've had a chance to see them up close here at PropWorks. Um, oh, cool. The, the headpieces, the head they are very, very well done. They did a great job on costumes, but I don't care for the story. I don't care for the acting. I think it is very, very cliche. I think this. I think this episode uh, basically uh, highlights everything that didn't work with the show. This show had just had a lot of potential that fell short. I'm really sorry to to, to say that. The ancient gene is is uh, slowly being weaned out of their bloodline. I mean, they they apparently had some ancestor who had an ancient gene and now it's becoming harder and harder with each successive generation to continue to use ancient technology and keep the city safe they're growing desperate because of it yeah and so of course john shepherd has has more midichlorians in his blood than anybody's ever seen (laughs) and uh so they want to want to pawn him off with uh, the the princess Uh, i think it's Mm. a good idea i like the contrast also the 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 design contrast between the advanced ancient city that we know and love and this really uh, a gaudy medieval style um, castle, basically, they've turned it into. So that makes for some cool visuals. This has one of my favorite actors in it. Uh, Peter Woodward plays Otho, the uh, right-hand man to the king who turns out to be the treacherous poisoner pouring the, pouring the poison into his cup while he's not looking. Um, just he's a fantastic actor. He was on on Babylon Five and and Crusade, and uh, he's so good. And having him in this, uh, I think, helped to uh, to raise it a bar in in my mind. But your least favorite of the season? My least favorite, I think, is actually Critical Mass. 
And uh, the thing about season two, I think more than any other season of the show, is I find myself uh, out of sync with most fans. I think uh, there are some episodes that I thought were okay that a lot of fans loved, and there are some episodes that that fans liked, like Critical Mass. That yeah, that Marimba's favorite just episode really left me cold. Oh, is it Marimba's favorite? It's her favorite episode of Atlantis. Wow, it starts out on Earth, starts out with Malcolm Barrett running into General Landry, telling us that the Trust, which has been taken over by the Gould, has planted a bomb in Atlantis. They have a mole in Atlantis. Now, in mm-hmm. premise, the idea of a crossover between SG-1 and Atlantis is is just going to be buckets of fun. And the, the idea of having a Gould on Atlantis, which was the only time I think they ever did this, yep. is, is in premise, it sounds really fun, but I mean, it's... Then we go over and we have Dr. Lee, and he comes up with the idea of how to get the message to Atlantis, the Twilight Bark. I, it, so much SG-1 stuff with no members of, of, of SG-1, of the main cast. Uh, it's all the supporting players from SG-1. It, was, it seemed like it was like the first 15 or 20 minutes of the episode, and it just felt so out of place to me. I felt like I was not even watching an episode of Atlantis. Uh, but again, this episode has some cool things going for it. We're basically interrogating guys like Kavanaugh. That stuff is fun. This, this episode has Beyond the Night. It has Rachel's beautiful, beautiful performance of that song. Uh, yes. Written by Joel Goldsmith, uh, which was which was out of the box for Atlantis. It was a it was a really nice thing. I, I kind of wish they would have done it again. But uh, and then yeah. and then the fact that we do get a gold in Atlantis and it turns out to be Caldwell. Yeah, that was one of those wow moments of the season where you, where you see that one it of was. the one of the players of Atlantis is a gold. It was somebody significant. No. It was somebody that we liked. And uh, I, even though this is my least favorite episode of the season. It's got some wow moments that, that for characters like Caldwell, when I think about Caldwell, I think about scenes like, you know, Ronan and him throwing down at the end of it. Mm-hmm. And the bomb turns out to be the Z- a ZPN, which makes a lot of sense. But let's go back to the beginning of the year. You basically said everything that I liked and disliked about the episode. But, okay. uh, you know, I don't treat it as, as negatively as, as you do. It is not my favorite, by all means, but it has some interesting and and fun stuff in it. Yeah, it does. But The Siege Part 3, definitely a great show. Visual effects extravaganza, great writing, great acting. Um, It really is a a package deal of everything that's that's good about the show. We get introduced to the Deep Space Carrier class Daedalus, and it does not disappoint. This was the first time that we had ever seen one. Right, the flying office building, Prometheus, and now we get this. Prometheus, yeah. But Daedalus is cool. Yep, yep. That's a pretty ship. And we get introduced to Caldwell, who uh, is is uh, played Our by Mitch, Mitch Pileggi from The X-Files, who's a, yeah. an awesome guy. I had the, the great fortune of interviewing him and meeting yeah. I just I was just basking in his, uh, his coolness. He's such a cool guy. And the mm-hmm. character is a lot of fun. Yes, Caldwell had a big role this season. You know, they wanted to add a, a dynamic to Shepard and Weir that, uh, you know, kind of was uh, off off key. And um, in episodes like Trinity, that really came out. Yeah, so we have Daedalus. We have all the cool things that Daedalus can do. It's got Asgard transporters. It's got an Asgard. Beaming our guys around. It's got an Asgard working in the engineering. We meet Hermiod. Fun character. We finally hear some Asgard again. It's a reverse uh, human speech. 
Mm. Uh, so if you play it backwards, you'll hear him say things in uh, in English. Uh, in earlier seasons of the show, when they did Asgard speech, that's not how they did it. At least not like uh, doing a complete sentence in reverse. He's probably swearing under his breath most of the time. When will these humans learn that there are consequences to action is one of them. Oh, yeah? That's yeah. good. That's so good. Yeah. I mean, basically, the way that everybody interacts with Hermion, everybody from the Atlantis team, is like the way that Jack used to interact with with uh, not with Thor so much as with the Asgard that he didn't know, you know, mm-hmm. is Thor around? Is Thor back? You sure Thor is not back there? It's you know everybody's kind of a little bit put off and not sure how to talk to him, especially when Shepard meets him for the first time. Is he supposed to be naked like that? What do you think about Ford and Ford's direction in the season premiere? Um, this was our introduction to the Wraith enzyme. Yeah, let's get him the hell off the show as fast as we can. Um, it kind of felt that way. Yeah. Uh, it was a, it was a great story, a great uh, direction that they uh, approached again in Runner and uh, uh, the Lost Boys. But I mean, it uh, it really felt like you know they gave him a puddle jumper and got him out of there. Mm. Just showing him the door. Well, there definitely was so much going on in this episode that they couldn't spend a whole lot of time with Ford. So it's nice that that he gets much more of a focus in Runner, which I think is a really good episode. Well, he and Groden are the are the big casualties of of this of the siege. They they had to do it. What about the intruder? The intruder is an interesting one. Uh, we've kind of been waiting to see our team go back to Earth and go back to Earth for real. Uh, unlike the time they went back to Earth in Home, and it turned out mm-hmm. to be a, a head fake. But uh, intruder, we see some scenes of you know Weir goes back and actually talks to real Simon. Yeah, he has met someone. You know, he's. He's busy with patience and research, and he's not willing to go to Atlantis because, you know, he has a life. Uh, Shepard goes back and meets Ford's cousin and tells her about the loss of Aiden, and I think that's it. I think that's it. You know, I mean, Weir gets debriefed by Landry, mm-hmm. and, you know, the home is, is not uh, as, uh, as warm and welcoming as when they left it, you know? A yeah. lot of things have happened. And it, this is interesting. We start to see when you take SG-1 out of the picture, and when you take Jack O'Neill and Cameron Mitchell and Sam Carter out of the picture, and it's Landry interacting with Weir. It's uh, it's really interesting. He seems like he's he's not quite as friendly with her. He's he's a little bit more standoffish, uh, and it's uh, it's you know more like he's he's her boss. Mm-hmm. At least that's the way I saw the relationship. Yeah, interesting. But so in the Intruder, we're flying back to Atlantis on the Daedalus, and we have a Wraith computer virus which was kind of a cool yep. idea. And uh, we yeah, have to they... reboot the system and shut everything down, and, and it still finds a place to live and finds a place to hide and comes back with a vengeance. And, and then it ends up taking over a ship in a 302 at the end. I think that they was to a... go out and blow it up. It was great. That was a cool little thing, cool little ending. You have to go out and actually chase down this Wraith computer virus and blow it up. Runner, the introduction of Ronan Dex, and the departure, basically, of Ford. Again, great flashbacks of this character. Jason Momoa, well cast. Uh, we're on a planet uh, with a UV index of something very high, and McKay's bitching about, you know, sunburn or whatever. Yeah, and he's and, bitching uh, to Lauren. Skin, skin cancer. Yeah, Lauren is this back. Is, this he is Lauren's first Atlantis episode. We met Lauren all the way back in Season 7 of SG-1. He was just kind of a random soldier in the episode Enemy Mine. And now he's on Atlantis, and he becomes, as we as we well know, a, a significant supporting character. Runner, I really like. I think this is one of the strongest of, of season two. And 
so much of that is on Jason's shoulders. He was so well cast. He does such mm-hmm. a he does such a good job as as the rogue. You know, I'm I'm looking out for myself and and I'm not ready to trust anybody yet. And uh, you know, dirty and wearing leather and and animal skins. That you know, I kind of wish that we would have seen the runner side of Ronan more than we did. Obviously, we got Satita in season three, which was fantastic. But um, the runner Ronan is is cool, and the fact that he captures us, he captures. John and Taylor keeps him in a cave. They have to try to earn his trust. The Androcles and the lion stuff with Beckett coming yeah. to the planet and, and pulling the tracker out of his back. Yeah, I mean, there's there's some fun stuff. I now have a, a love hate relationship with Ronan. His costumes are so beautiful, but they, they they're so damn heavy. They keep breaking all my hangers, and I hate <laughs> I hate dealing with Ronan's costumes. They are so heavy, man. His mm. his stuff from Runner is just gorgeous. It's just gorgeous. The the uh, how it's it's cobbled together skins and clearly he's patched it together and made his own clothes. Um, working for Propworks has really given me a, an interesting perspective on all of this stuff. Mm-hmm, I bet. And Ronan gives some some great history. You know, I love lines like "They hunted me, I hunted them back," <laughs> and then just you know flashbacks of him getting the drop on Wraith and and taking yeah. him out. You know, this this was a cool character, and I really feel like this was a good move for the show. Um, I love Rainbow personally, but I was not crazy about his character in season one, and and the the underuse, I guess. They it seemed like they didn't really figure out what they were going to do with him. And then when you when you bring in a character like Ronan, who's just so larger than life, such a stark contrast to the the young wide eyed military guy. I mean, it just, it felt like the character change was a really wise move. Duet. Laura Cadman is plugged into Rodney McKay's consciousness. What a great idea. You and I met Martin Garrow around the same time, and he was just so excited about this episode. Yeah, and this is one that, that fans still talk about when you go back to season two, and anytime you talk about Rodney for, for too long, people are going to talk about Duet, and they're going to talk about the kiss mm-hmm. at the end with Beckett. Mm-hmm. Fun show. Fun writing. Really fun, and you see David Hewlett's capacity for, for humor, because uh, his character is so... Rodney McKay is so... Uh, just a, a jerk in some episodes. And, uh, I mean, contrast McKay in something like Duet with McKay and Trinity, which we'll talk about in a second. And there's... I mean, McKay is just two different guys in those episodes he's just I think David Hewlett really shows off in this episode and then after Duet comes Condemned which I think was a cool little idea we have not seen many species in the Pegasus galaxy that were at all technologically advanced because the Wraith were keeping them down and, and we have a very good reason for this it's a great like you said a great idea an island of prisoners mm-hmm. uh, where the Stargate is the Wraith stay fed and the the Wraith commander has made an agreement with the Olesian magistrates uh, to uh, maintain a certain level of order in the society. And as soon as he breaks it, the Wraith are going to come and kill them all. Yeah, I think the premise is really cool. It's the, the idea that, that somewhere out there, there is a human colony who has struck a deal with the Wraith. And the Wraith are going to get what they want. They're going to get fed. And it's it's just a nice little idea. And bringing, bringing Weir then to, to negotiate with these guys... Uh, having Weir get off-world for once. I like seeing that. The ending scene of, of the cruiser descending on the on the planet, you know, I think that that's a, 
a great scene. You see the the horror in the leader's eyes. You know, mm-hmm. uh, we did. I did a little photo manipulation. Uh, if you go to the episode page in the last image, uh, I uh, I thought that that last shot would have been much better served if you saw the reflection of the cruiser in the in the glass. And uh, I did uh, a, a Photoshop of that image in uh, as the fourth image on that episode page, and you can see that I think it would have made for a much much more emotionally impactful shot. Yeah, yeah, that's a cool image. Trinity, you know. Trinity basically to me is the episode where Rodney says that he's not going to screw up and he does. Um, this is my second least favorite episode of the season. You know, he goes on and on about trust me, Shepard, trust me, trust me. You know, and I, would, I know what I'm doing. And you know, the, the episode was basically about you know showing McKay screwing up. This is the episode where McKay screws up. Mm-hmm. Blows up three fifths of a solar system. It's fine. I think the Ronin stuff is much more interesting. He goes and finds Kel, his original, uh, his original battalion commander, and murders him in cold blood. And we kind of see you know, who he is as a character because of it. And Taylor's like, "Don't tell the team that you did this. They wouldn't understand." Yeah, yeah. But apparently she does. Yeah, she's a little irked that that he used her for that, but she understands why he did it. It was really interesting to learn right off the bat with Ronan on the show for him to discover that he's not the last survivor of the Satidan civilization. There are others out there that are now scattered across planets. Yeah, that was big. But as far as the A story goes, um, I always like seeing ancient technology that got abandoned. These guys, you know, they, they go around, they do these experiments, they try this out, they got a really big idea and they just can't make it work and it just becomes a massive screw up. I mean, think about the time loop machine, which was supposed mm-hmm. to be a time machine, in Window of Opportunity. It's a giant, really super ambitious ancient project that, at the end of the day, they just couldn't get to work. So, and they all died because of it, though. I mean, there yeah, was it, no way for them to walk away from that. It really puts the ancient civilization in perspective. I mean, they give us they give us Stargates, and they give us the city of Atlantis, and now they give, have given us the Destiny. But, you know, they've got some some failed projects and some big screw-ups in their past. Trinity introduces Project Arcturus, which was, uh, you know, a, a new form of ZPM, you know, dr- driving vacuum energy from multiple space-times or just an, an alternate space-time in this particular one. And this was mm-hmm. revisited in McKay and Mrs. Miller and yeah. later in... Um, Brainstorm. Brainstorm. Uh, so the big episode in terms of that. But yeah, you're right. It seemed like at the end of the day, most of the reason why the episode exists was to demonstrate that McKay is fallible, that he can screw up, and when he does screw up, it's going to be colossal. So I'm not sure that, that uh, it warrants an hour just to get that point across. Instincts. Jewel State's first appearance in Stargate. What a magnificent character. We've got Elliot's costume. It is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um great character you know you feel for this for this little girl uh at least i did you know i i really f- had feelings for this character and, and felt bad when she uh, was transformed into an erratus thing uh jewel just mops up the floor yeah she certainly was the first sympathetic wraith that we had ever seen and i guess we met sympathetic gould every once in a while i mean if you don't count the tokra on on rare occasion, we met a sympathetic Gould, but he on a seer, yeah. yeah, yeah. But this was a wraith who was you know raised by a human who she knew as her father, and uh, was just you know didn't want to be what she was, wanted to to be bigger than that. So this is the episode where we find out about Beckett's retrovirus and that he maybe has a way for her to not be a wraith anymore. It's really sweet, and and just the the vicious dark ending is is 
really heartbreaking. I love the atmosphere of Instinct. Uh, it felt like a when it started off, it felt like um, that with the fog, the atmosphere, and the Dimos or whatever she was called, it felt like a, a monster movie or a horror flick. I loved the atmosphere of that, mm-hmm. and it was it was maintained throughout most of the episode. You know, you never know what's out there in the woods in the fog. You know, it may kill you. It may it may suck your life out of you. Uh, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, what really impresses me about Instinct. Uh, in addition to Jewel's performance, I think she's a terrific actress, is the fact that they surprise you in this episode. There are a couple of twists at the end. There's like three of them. Uh, One of them is that Elia is actually not maintaining her fast. She's going out there and eating humans. Another one is the fact that her father is uh, not actually some 60-some-year-old dude, but it's like a 30-some-year-old dude who has a father of his own living in the village. And he's been allowing her to feed on him. That's creepy. Yeah, those are some nice little story twists. And then, of course, it's a, a cliffhanger climax where Elia bites Shepard, so to speak, and uh, he gets infected. You know, instinct and conversion has a lot in common with progeny and the real world. Yeah, in season three. Yeah. Yeah, it rolls right into it. So Shepard's been infected and he's turning into one of these things. Climbing up the walls really fast. That's, that's a freaky image. That's yeah, that's freaky. And it's kind. Of, it's I think the way they shot it, it's kind of in the background. Yeah, like the camera's focused on Taylor, and then he's just you see this Flanagan scurry up the wall. So then they wanted to do the Uratus bug again. We did the Uratus bug really, really early in the series, in 38 minutes, and it looked like a, a giant plastic prop attached to Joe's neck. So here they wanted to do Uratus bugs right. They have a big nest of them that we've got to go. We got to go get some what they got in order to, yeah. to, to cure Shepard. And uh, they did him CG, and they did him super cool and creepy, I think. Aurora. Man, we have so many props from Aurora. I cannot tell you. Ancient laptops, stunners, those costumes, the combat. Oh, yeah, just, just goes on and on. That, that episode was full of beautiful pieces. Those costumes are great. The only thing that I didn't really care for is, is the ship. Um, and you and I are pretty simpatico on this. We, uh, we don't care for the ancient warship design. It doesn't do the city of Atlantis justice in its design. Yeah, for a civilization as long-lived and advanced as they were, the, the external design of their warships seems to be incredibly functional. Uh, and I think as we see in Atlantis especially, the ancients really had a, a, a great sense of design, a great sense of style. Mm-hmm. I mean... They're, they have a, a culture that is characterized by beauty, by these tall spires and these stained glass windows. These warships are just, you know, smashed together functional. I don't get it. Uh, the Aurora crew are, are living in this artificial world, and a Wraith is trying to get the information from them to report back to his superiors of what it is. Um, the, the crew is so old that, you know, they can never come out of their life support units and it's really really neat yeah so they're all in stasis and then they've got this vr world where they're walking around normal uh, performing their duties not knowing that one of their one of their own has been that her body's been yanked out and a wraith is now in there posing as her in the vr world i like this episode a lot this is one of my favorites of season two to be honest the Lost Boys and the Hive, the, the mid-season, mid-season two-parter. two-parter. Rainbow is back as not lieutenant anymore, Aiden Ford. You just murdered my men. On the run. Hopped up on drugs. He's developed a little team for himself. 
That's interesting that he went out, he got hopped up on, on Wraith Enzyme, which makes you super strong and super fast and not super smart. And he went out and found some some young hapless lads and convinced them to start taking it too and, and create a little power team for himself. Ford's A-team. Ford's captured the team and he's uh, given all of them the enzyme except Shepard so that he can see what the benefits of this and they turn into just monsters. They invade a Wraith Hive ship and they get captured. And um, we yeah. finally see another Bad queen... Point. Or the first queen. We we haven't seen a queen yet, except for the keeper, which I think was a queen anyway. And she used her psionic abilities to bring Shepard to his knees, and that's how it closes. It was a great ending. And the hive, I like. Uh, Shepard ends up in in uh, this this prison cell on the hive with this you know <laughs> cute young uh, girl who's just been scooped up from a from a hapless Pegasus civilization. And uh, I love this introduction of, of this concept. These guys are wraith worshippers. That she's a spy for the queen, and there is this little cult of people in the Pegasus galaxy who worship the wraith. Mm-hmm. I thought that was so interesting, and uh, because you know the wraith are basically feeding on on humans. We're cattle to them, and then suddenly you get this. You know, it's almost like a Gould Jaffa relationship. Mm-hmm. With uh, servitude and worship, voluntarily, and uh, it's they they come back and explore it a little bit later in the series, but uh, not enough for my satisfaction. I thought it was just so interesting. I wish they would have done more with the wraith worshippers. Yeah, they almost functioned like Lotars. They had a couple of great lines, you know, and the clowns. Yeah, we fight them too. Dozens of them pouring out of Volkswagens. I thought that was <laughs> funny. You know, McKay is hyped up on drugs, and you know he that he has some great scenes. Then he goes back to Atlantis and almost dies. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, we we lose we lose Ford. At least we think we do. It's pretty safe to say that he was killed. Well, we're not sure if point. we do. That's actually one of my big complaints about this episode. Is he got away in Siege Part Three, and then Runner is supposed to be the big dealing with the Ford issue episode, and then he gets away at the end of Runner by running into a Wraith transport beam, culling beam. And again, at the end of this episode, it's, I mean, there's no definitive closure for that Mm-mm. character. Mm-mm. And it, it's really disappointing to me that that the writers, uh, maybe because they thought they, they might bring him back at some point if the right story came up, but I would have much rather had just some solid resolution. Epiphany. You know, this is another one that Joe, even Joe Flanagan himself talks about uh, as um, you know, it didn't execute Really, the way that he wanted it. Another another great idea where where Shepard finds a uh, a a group of, um, of of humans in a time dilation bubble and lives out months of his life there with them. Uh, you know, beginning to develop a, a spirituality akin to ascension, and they have uh, an enemy in the form of this invisible monster that represents their last challenge before they can ascend. And once they defeat it, then they can join their um, Join their ascended brethren. Hmm. Uh, I like ascension stories. This this was a good one in terms of that. Uh, but I, I kind of agree with Joe that it was missing something, but I can't quite put my finger on it. Yeah, Joe. We get Joe to talk about this one a lot because this was when when Joe sort of behind the camera started to to really be involved in in uh, story ideas. This was this was a Joe Flanagan story by I think I think he gets the story by credit. Yeah, Brad and Joe. Yeah. So Joe helped to come up with a story for this and. Uh, 
obviously had a lot invested in it and, and has talked publicly about the fact that he wasn't quite, quite satisfied with uh, the way that it turned out. I liked it um, for the most part. I thought it turned out rather well. Um, it doesn't blow me away, but uh, the the time dilation stuff I love. I think it's really interesting. The mm-hmm. the map on a stick. Up on a stick. You know, sticking the map on a stick through the the uh, barrier into the bubble, uh, and then figuring out that uh, you know time is passing at a different rate and all that, and and what has now uh, been minutes to us has been days to Shepard, and you know we've got to hurry and figure out what we're going to do, and and uh, that stuff's really fascinating. I like th- I like that stuff. Guy who plays Avrid, David McNally, returns from uh, Stargate SG-1. I mean, he was pl- he played Hanno and Simon mm-hmm. in Korai and Demons, I think, respectively. Right. Great to have him back. Good actor. But we must move on to Grace Under Pressure, one of we my must. favorite episodes of the show. You know, this was Grace done right, in my opinion. I had <laughs> heard about Grace for a long time on SG-1. Really looking forward to Sam being trapped in a bottle, and the entire time she was kind of like, "Oh, I'm so tired. I'm so tired." And, and but this is just Grace cubed. I mean, it's just really, really good. The, the writing is kick-ass, and Amanda tapping guest stars as Carter. You know, there's a lot of jousting. There's just a lot of verbal sparring. It's a great show. The effects are really cool. It's great all around. The title was a deliberate homage, I guess, to the, the SG-1 Season 7 episode where it was Carter stuck on the Prometheus by herself. Now, this is McKay stuck in a puddle jumper, and what's even more freaky to me as somebody who is afraid of, of drowning, I, that's, I think the worst way to go is to like be in a car that goes into the lake and you can't get out of the car. That's Ugh. like my worst way to go. But this is McKay in a puddle jumper that is sinking in the ocean by himself. So he's Grace under pressure. Get it? Yeah. Pressure. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Since McKay was was brought on full time for Atlantis, I mean we, we wanted to see him with Sam, didn't we? We yes. we've seen McKay on, on SG one in Forty Eight Hours and Redemption, and that was all about the, the Carter McKay banter and sparring. Yeah. So we wanted to see it, we wanted to see it and now finally a year and a half into the series we see some full on McKay Carter stuff. Smoochy, smoochy, kissy, kissy. Was I naked? She later asks in the this project. <laughs> a cool concept, and again, this would be one of those episodes that I liked, but I didn't like as much as most people seem to. This seems to be one of the all-time top ten Atlantis favorites for most fans, and uh, it was it was kind of you know middle of the road, a little bit better for me. I liked it. I didn't love it. Another one with a great concept: the long goodbye. Shepard and Weir get warring enemies, kind of like uh, you know the, the the black and white cookie characters from uh, mm-hmm. from uh, uh, Star Trek the original. What was that episode? So, Let that be your last battlefield. Is that the that's episode? Right. Yeah, that's wow, right. Wow, look at me. Look to the cookie, Elaine. Look, look to, to the, the cookie. cookie. I think it's the black and white cookie. You get this great dynamic, like, like in the original Star Trek episode. You you get these these two who are I mean who are who appear to be of the same race, you know, in their life stasis pods, but they are hunting each other. They are determined to be the last of their civilization to kill their enemy. We've we've seen this a few different times, you know. Utah, the clan Trelesta in uh, in Next Generation, it's all about my clan outlasting yours. Period. Even if it's just by one person. Great performances by Tori Higginson and and Joe Flanagan. Just ruthless killers. Yeah, so the alien in Weir works up, wakes up first and then says, this other guy is my mate, and I just want a chance to say goodbye. And then it's, it's not it's not her mate. 
It's, she could have killed him right then and there. It's a bitter enemy, and they end up racing around the city playing this, this game of cat and mouse. I think this one works really well, and it does actually remind me of, not not in this case, not a specific episode of Star Trek, but it feels like kind of like a Star Trek yeah. episode. That's uh, The Vengeance Factor is the one you're thinking of. Coup d'etat. Ryro is back as Laden Radim of the Janai. He smokes Kalamini. What have you done? Boom. So this is a Janai episode. We haven't seen the Janai for quite a while, but uh, this is Layden's big move to... It's a coup d'etat. He wants control of the Janai civilization, and he uses our team to give Cowan what he thinks is, is coming to him. It's kind of good for us because we can now have better relations with the Janai because uh, Layden seems to be more of a reasonable guy, even though he's, he's gaining power this surreptitious way. Uh, Cowan was not our buddy. But Layden wasn't planning on being our buddy either. The only reason that he had any interest in, in joining us in the end is uh, that we, you know, like we've been warning them about their nuclear technology. You know, you guys have no idea how bad the radiation from this stuff is, and we're able to cure his sister. And only then is he willing to say, okay, I'm going to work yeah. with you. I'll let yeah. you guys go. Uh, uh, before then, we were, we were hosed. Well, interesting. I mean, Layden's character just got so many dimensions added to yeah. him in this episode because he's willing to take these these members of his civilization, of the Janai society, including his own sister, who have been been basically exposed to lethal doses of radiation, and uh, you know, send them to Atlantis and basically write them off. Yeah. Really interesting stuff. That's the side of, of Layden that uh, I really liked in this episode. And when Layden comes back, he's, I don't know, he's kind of lost his edge. He turns up again in Common Ground, and as great as Common Ground is, I think that, that Layden has sort of been, been defanged a little bit by then. So we talked about Michael, and we talked about the season finale. That leaves Inferno, the big volcano episode. I enjoy this one, I really do. I mean, it has a great guest star, Brandy Ledford. I was really taken by... Uh, uh, the character of um, of Narina. Uh, you've you've got uh, a planet that's uh, a, the ancient. This ancient base is sitting inside a massive caldera, and the Daedalus can only has only life support for so many people. So what are we going to do? You know, we've got to get them out of here. The Stargate has just been destroyed near the beginning of the episode. It's gone. What do you do? It's a it's a logistical nightmare, mm-hmm. and uh, they've got an ancient ship. So it's a matter of figuring out how to use the ancient ship, which we named the Orion. matter of deciding if we want to get inside the ancient ship and have our friends see us flying around in it. Yeah. Terranians are not interested in letting us have it, you know. They eventually let us have it uh, in exchange for, for whatever it was. But, you know, I mean, that's, that's one of their bargaining ships, is this ancient warship secured in a, in a hangar. But the planet's just about to, to go. You know, it's going to have this definitely. huge eruption. The poor Tyrannians definitely got the bum end of the deal. Oh, they got hosed throughout the they entire show. They got seriously hosed. Not only did we lose their ship, but, man, we'll talk about that in Season 3. The Doctor from uh, from early SG-1 is now playing the Tyrannian uh, leader, Chancellor Lycus. Kevin McNulty, he's back. Again, Inferno is a nice off-world story where we get in trouble and try and help a civilization, and it's got these great, great visuals, like the volcano stuff. Stargate falling into the lava. I mean, that's yeah. just cool, cool stuff. Overall, season two, you know, it has some great episodes. I think it has some more great episodes than it has not so good shows. Looking back on it, or 
I, I don't I don't give this season nearly enough credit, but when I analyze episode to episode, I do like them a lot more. Season two remains, I think, my least favorite season of the show, and uh, it it does have some really fine episodes. I think it starts and it ends in fine, fine fashion with uh, the season premiere and the season finale. It's got some some nice elements that are going to uh, add to the fabric of the show's mythology. Michael is a wonderful episode mm. that, that introduces a, a key, key piece of the Atlanta story moving forward. Uh, key, the, key. Key, comma, key. <laughs> the Ford stuff, uh, I'm, I'm not crazy about. about. I think that, that it made the character really interesting to get him hopped up on drugs, but uh, as a way of, of sort of showing him the door, which is, is what it felt like to me as a viewer, I found it a little disappointing. But, um, yeah. you know, we get, uh, on the other hand, we get Jason Momoa as Ronan Dex in season two, which is a, a big step forward for the show, I think. Uh, that character and what Jason brought to the table, I thought, I think was, was just terrific and exactly the shot in the arm that the show needed. Um, on balance, looking at these episodes, I think um, it's, yeah, seasons one, three, four, and five I just liked better. You are listening to the Gateworld Podcast. Thanks to everybody who called in this week. We have a couple other pieces of listener mail. Let's get into it. Hi, my name's Kevin. I'm from Austin, Texas. Now, this seems semi-obvious to me, so forgive me if you've already gone over this before. Do you think Stargate, at least SG-1, has an atheist bias? The reason I ask is because of the fact that, ignoring the whole Gould thing, the main antagonists for Stargate Seasons 9 and 10 were the quote-unquote, religious ori. And the main protagonists were the scientists-slash-presumably-atheist ancients. Bear in mind that I am an atheist, so for Stargate to be atheist would be a compliment from my point of view. Interesting voicemail. Yeah, that could almost be a, a podcast topic in itself. Yeah, the, the thing about the Hollywood atmosphere is most shows are secular or progressive-leaning. Mm. I mean, that's just the way it's going to be. With that in mind, I think Stargate has done a pretty decent balance of having a non-biased feel. In my opinion, as, as, a, as a Christian guy, I do not feel that it has an atheist bias. I agree. You see those shows that obviously have sort of a, a liberal, progressive bent to them. There are episodes of Star Trek that have lines of dialogue that I find offensive. As a, as a person of faith, you know, Picard saying he basically talks about how religion is, is just a superstition and, and human society has moved on past it. But Stargate doesn't do that kind of stuff. As a student of theology, this is one of the reasons why Stargate SG-1 is one of my favorite shows. There aren't really a whole lot of episodes that are about religious faith, other mm -hmm. than, as Kevin said, the Ori story arc in the last two seasons. But, you know, I've talked with Rob Cooper at length about that stuff, and... And I agree with what he says, that it's, it's much more about zealousness um, in terms of, of, I think it has a lot more to do with making fanaticism. commentary on fanaticism, on you know radical extremism leading you to kill people, leading you to blow up abortion clinics or crash airplanes into buildings. So yeah, I don't think there's an atheist bias, actually. I think that it respects the faith that characters have at key moments, you know. Babylon 5 is one of my all-time favorite series, and, and its writer is an avowed atheist, and that show takes religious faith more seriously than I think any show I've ever seen. Wow. There are only a couple of comments in SG-1 that I kind of, you know, 
furrowed my brow over. For instance, one in Origin where, you know, Mitchell's always talking about how his grandma was a real Bible thumper. And then Landry at the very end of the show says, I had a grandma too, you know, who shared those sentiments, which is basically saying that, yeah, we don't share those beliefs anymore. Those are in our family members that are now long dead. And, you know, we're kind of moved past that. So that that kind of was like, oh, you know, so you, you don't see any value in that anymore. But other than that, you know, no, I, I really don't feel that the show has a, an atheist bias. You know, you talk, they talk about, Orlin talks about how the Alterans believed in science, for want of a better word, and the Ori believed in in religion and and that that kind of thing led to their yeah, that dichotomy is there it suggests that science prevails and that religion leads to your undoing if you look at it that way uh so that was another one that was like hmm you know but like he says for for lack of a better distinction this is this is how this particular group approached it that does not mean that all groups end that that way yeah. but I, I really think now that we're talking about this i really think it's a whole <laughs> podcast it's a very good question, Kevin. I think we're going to talk about it some more in a, in a future show. Hello, this is Carr from Hawaii, and I was just wanted to know, do you guys know when the show is coming back on TV? Stargate Universe is coming back if you are in the United States or Canada on April 2nd. We're going to get 10 brand new episodes to wrap up Season 1 starting on Friday, April 2nd. Uh, here, where I am in the UK, it's going to air on Tuesdays, and Sky One has not officially announced it yet, but... I, if I was you, I'd put my money on April 6th, uh, that, that following Tuesday. So we'll get 10 episodes through April, May, and into June, and then the show will already be working on, on Season 2. They'll be filming before we see the next episode, and uh, I think Season 2 is going to premiere in the fall. So this week's listener question, if you liked hearing us talk about Stargate Atlantis, maybe you'll like hearing us talk about Stargate Versus one of our other favorite science fiction shows. Continuing our Versus series, which we started Stargate versus Star Trek, this week, Battlestar Galactica. What do you think, and this is your question, what do you think Stargate does better than Battlestar Galactica? And for that matter, what does Battlestar do better than Stargate? Call us on the hotline for this answer, 951-262-1647. We know a lot of you are Battlestar nuts out there enjoy us talking about the show uh so we're going to do that next week yep when battlestar started airing it was back to back with stargate and uh, a lot of us became battlestar fans and and are still stargate fans loving both shows battlestar is obviously over now though it's got its own spin-off going on so you know if it's in terms of storytelling it's in terms of characters and how they're used or music or sets or whatever it is what do you think that battlestar does better than our beloved stargate and what does Stargate do that just takes it to Battlestar and says, yeah, that's how yeah. you do that. That's our February 24th show, Stargate versus Battlestar Galactica. And then on March 3rd, we're going to do our very, very special discussion on women in Stargate. Have our special guests been confirmed? Our special guests have been confirmed, and I think it's safe to announce that we're going to bring back Louisa Robison, who was our special guest for our fan fiction discussion last year, which was one of my favorite shows from 2009. Uh, and she's going to be discussing Women in Stargate with GateWorld Forum's own Tammy Farrar. The two female voices that you've heard on the show are going to go head-to-head and discuss their opinions about Women in Stargate. One of the boys are going to duck out and serve as moderator, and they're just gonna, we're just going to let the girls go to town, basically. 
we said a long time ago that uh, if we did a woman in a Stargate discussion, one of us would, would bow out for a show and let two girls take it. And so that's what we're going to do. I'm really looking forward to that. Should be some really interesting discussion. Yeah. I hope. No pressure. No pressure. And then on March 10th, we'll come back and do more Stargate Atlantis. We're talking about season three. So thanks for tuning in. That's all the show that we have. If you want to call us on the hotline, once again, that number is 951-262-1647. Long distance rates apply. You can also email in a brief audio recording to webmaster at gateworld.net. And you can always write to us in the podcast feedback thread. It's there in GateWorld Forum for you to discuss the show if you feel so inclined. I always feel inclined. From GateWorld, this is Darren. This is David. And we'll see you back here next week. We'll do it again.